It's gone by awful fast. Country roads worker Robert Lauer retires after 57 years. Feenstra moves to advance biofuels, three bills introduced in the U.S. House. Growing up as a right-hand man, Dimer Lee works alongside father as he loses use of hand. And finally, Shrove Tuesday Supper to mark beginning of Lent. These stories and more on this reading of the Fort Dodge Messenger. Hi everyone, this is Andrew Hopp here on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. All across the network here, this is your voice for the Fort Dodge Messenger, and I'm filling in. It is the Monday, February 20th edition, as brought to you here on Tuesday, February 21st, 2023. Those headlines, stories, and more, but first a check of your forecast for Fort Dodge and the Northwest Iowa area. Well, for today, you can expect partly sunny skies for this Tuesday, then later on a slight chance of snow. That snow looking to come between 2 and 3 o'clock this afternoon. Increasing clouds as well with uh, a high near 32, wind chill values as low as 5 above. Those winds gusting out of the south and southeast later on today, up to 23 miles per hour. For tonight, you can expect a slight chance of snow after 9 p.m., then a slight chance of snow and freezing rain between 9 p.m. and midnight, then a slight chance of freezing rain after midnight. Mostly cloudy with low around 27, blustery with an east-northeast wind gusting as high as 23 miles per hour, a 20% chance of precipitation. Tomorrow, Wednesday, expect a chance of snow and freezing rain before 9 a.m. with that Canadian storm front moving in, or I guess, well, it's from the west. It's from the west. California, I think is what they're saying. Anyway, it's coming from out and about. A chance of snow between 9 a.m. and noon tomorrow, Wednesday, then rain, snow, and freezing rain afternoon. The high 34 degrees, windy conditions with the wind from the east and northeast, gusting as high as 34 miles per hour, a 90% chance of precipitation. New ice accumulation of less than a tenth of an inch possible. New snow accumulation of less than a half inch possible. Wednesday night, snow possibly mixed with freezing rain. Patchy blowing snow between 2 and 5 a.m. Windy conditions a low of eight of 18 on Wednesday night into Thursday morning. Thursday, snow likely mainly before noon, mostly cloudy with a high near 26. And Thursday night, mostly cloudy, a low around negative 3. Friday, a 30% chance of snow afternoon, mostly cloudy with a high near 19. Friday night, mostly cloudy, a low around 11. Saturday, sunny with a high near 36. Looking at Sunday, a high of uh, 37. Sunny both Saturday and Sunday. So we might be getting the snow, but hopefully it'll melt off before too long. As uh, we look at that forecast, but again for today, this Tuesday, you can expect partly sunny conditions and snow later on, a slight chance of snow later on, 20% chance, a high of 32 degrees for your Tuesday. We had a very nice day yesterday for President's Day. Our headline story in the Fort Dodge Messenger, it's gone by awful fast. County roads worker Robert Lauer retires after 57 years, a story by Kelby Wingert. In 1966, Lyndon B. Johnson was president. A gallon of gas cost 32 cents. Star Trek debuted on TV. And California Dreamin' by the Mamas and the Papas topped the Billboard Hot 100 list. It was also the year Robert Lauer started his decades-long career in the Webster County Roads Department. After spending the next 57 years 
more than 70% of his life working for the county's roads department, Lauer punched his time card for the final time on February 2nd. Most recently, he was a Class B equipment operator at the county's Lehigh Shed. It's gone by awful fast, he told the messenger. Lauer grew up on a farm in the south-central Webster County township of Palm Grove, graduating from Calendar High School. An old friend came over to dinner one night and asked Lauer if he'd been interested if he'd be interested in a job with the county. The, Fred, the friend worked out of the Burnside shed and someone he worked with was preparing to retire. He was leaving to go home and he says, well, if you're interested, be up at the bridge yard Monday morning, Lauer recalled. And on Monday morning, that's exactly where he was. I was there for about a year and a half building bridges in the bridge yard, Lauer said. Then he had the chance to transfer to the Burnside Shed, where he stayed for a few years before transferring to the Lehigh Shed to operate heavy machinery and the backhoe. For the next half century, Lauer spent much of his time running the backhoe with county crews, repairing and replacing drain tile, or cleaning ditches around the eastern half of the county. You have to have good help because a lot of times it's not a clean job. Dirt work, he said. It's not very common these days to hear about someone who spent 57 years with the same employer. I liked the work and people knew that it wouldn't be a poor job, Lauer said. I like to do good work. He recalled a conversation he had with one of his early foremans. He told me, if you do good work, people will remember. They'll know who you are, Lauer said. There is plenty of work out there. In nearly six decades of working with heavy machinery, technology and conveniences have advanced, like the addition of air conditioning in the cab of the backhoe. I've never used the air conditioner, Lauer said, because I think if I'm inside the machine and the people that are out there helping me don't have it, why should I be cool when they're outside doing the work? If he's going to sweat, I'm going to sweat. Over the years, Lauer worked with other equipment like snow plows and maintainer graders. In January 1973, Lauer and another county employee, Everett Higby, were cleaning snowdrifts from Duncombe when their truck came to a sudden and unexpected halt. According to a messenger vehicle at the time, the V-shaped blade on their four-wheel drive truck snagged on the uneven road surface and came to an abrupt stop, throwing both men forward and into the windshield. It was a Sunday morning after a heavy snowfall and the county road crews were opening up the gravel roads around the county so the school buses could pick up their students on Monday. I broke the steering wheel with my nose, Lauer joked. We went to the hospital and they stuck cotton in my nose. My foreman says, we got to go because they're going to take you back to the shed and put you in the maintainer because we've got to open up the roads. Over the years, Webster County and its board of supervisors became more than just a boss to Lauer. They became family. When Lauer's son, Patrick, was born premature in January 1969, Lauer said someone from the hospital took him to the Board of Supervisors to ask what they were going to do to make sure Lauer would pay the bill for the 63-day hospital stay. It scared me, Lauer said. Supervisor Leonard Hanch, Lauer recalled, looked at him and asked him how long he planned to work for the county. I said, well, I can't answer you, but it's a good job and I get plenty of work out there and I enjoy it, Lauer said. He says, you just go home and take care of your family. Lauer is not exactly sure what Hanch did, but the hospital bill was paid off. I never heard another word, he said.
That's a nice story. That's our headline story. Moving on now to Shrove Tuesday, Supper to Mark Beginning of Lent. That's written by John McBride. St. Mark's Episcopal Church in Fort Dodge will be hosting a Shrove Tuesday Pancake Supper on February 21st. That's today, if you're listening to this on the network on Tuesday, to mark the kickoff to the Lenten season. The church will be serving pancakes, sausage, syrup, milk, orange juice, and coffee for just $10 per person. Children under 5 are free. Takeout will also be available. The supper will run from 4.30 to 7 p.m. at St. Mark's, located at 1007 First Avenue South. According to Reverend Chris Lehman, the tradition of being shriven is to prepare for the season of Lent. It's a time when we confess, and it's a time for, for penance and absolution of our sins, she said. Lent is a season of fasting and a season of prayer and reflection in our lives as we prepare for the great feast of Easter. Lehman explained in the past on Shrove Tuesday, people would clean out their larders of sugars and lard and fat along with cakes and sweets as they prepared to fast. They were using up all those things and thought pancakes were a good thing to make, she said. Lehman said the church will have both plain and blueberry pancakes and they are all you care to eat. We'll be working on getting the batter all mixed up and ready to go. We've really got it down to a science, she said. Proceeds from the supper go toward the outreach programs supported by the church. Lehman said the church hopes to be able to replenish the community cupboard that was started at the church and has been used often. We get a lot of foot traffic in front of the church, and so we may use some of the funds to replenish things in our cupboard, like non-perishable food and hygiene items, she said. Lehman also said the church has been doing change for change to support different groups each month. This month, all the change collected will be going to Almost Home, the local animal rescue shelter. She said some of the pancake supper proceeds may go to Almost Home along with a few other recipients. It will be put to good use, that's for sure, she said. Our next story, growing up as a right-hand man. Dimerly works alongside father after he loses use of hand. This story by Clayton Rye of Clarion. The barn on the Dale and Kim Dimerly farm was there when Dale's grandfather, Sebastian Dimerly, moved onto the farm in 1913, purchasing it in 1918. Dimerly estimates the barn was built in the late 1800s, as the house was built in 1895. After Sebastian Dimerly's death in 1940, his son, John, and wife, Mary, Dale's parents, became the next generation to farm the Century Farm. John Dimerly was one of five children and born on the farm. John and Mary Dimerly had seven children, and with an age spread of 18 years, with son Dale being number seven. Dale Dimerly tells of a farm accident when his father lost the fingers on his right hand when his hand was caught in a feed grinder in front of the barn on New Year's Day, leaving only his thumb. With only the use of one hand, young Dale worked alongside his father, helping when tasks required more than one hand. I was actually his right-hand man, said Dale Dimerly. I climbed bins. The barn became a dairy barn under John Dimerly. His wife, Mary, kept chickens in the haymow. Lots of chickens, said Dale Dimerly. The chickens laid 10 cases of eggs a week. Dimerly remembers getting up early before school to gather the eggs before they froze in the unheated barn. Once the chickens were gone, the opening at the east end of the barn was enlarged to accommodate beef cattle. They fed 100 head of cattle at a time. John Dimerly had the barn tinned 
to keep it in good shape. Dale Dimerly started farming in 1985. Dad was done with livestock, he said. Dimerly bought feeder pigs, feeding three bunches a year until... He quit in 1994. The cattle operation ended in 2015. Looking back at the livestock that were housed in the barn, Kim Dimerly said they had everything. Today the barn is home to five or six feral cats, down from 20 cats at one time. So that's the story there of John Dimerly and Dale Dimerly. Our final front page story, Feenstra moves to advocate biofuels. Three bills introduced in the U.S. House, a story by Bill Shea. Putting domestically produced biofuels at the center of the nation's energy planning is the objective of three measures recently introduced by U.S. Representative Randy Feenstra. The Republican from Hull said the one, one of the bills will also pump the brakes on what he considers to be a poor plan to switch the federal government's fleet to all-electric vehicles. In Iowa, every other row of corn and soybeans produ produces low-cost, low-carbon ethanol and biodiesel, the congressman said in a written statement. As a result, the vitality of our rural economy relies on a strong biofuels industry and a thriving agricultural sector. These three bills will support both. One of the bills is called the Comparison of Sustainable Transportation Act. It would direct the Government Accountability Office and the Department of Energy to compare the financial and environmental costs of replacing the federal fleet of gasoline-powered vehicles with either electric vehicles or those capable of using E85 ethanol blends. The Biojet Fuel Research Act would direct the federal government to lead the way on researching renewable aviation fuel. The Biofuel Cell Research Act would direct the Department of Energy to establish a research and development program that would lead to making fuel cell systems that use biofuels as the main energy source. Feenstra introduced all three measures last year, but they did not advance. The bills are supported by the Iowa Corn Growers Association and the Iowa Renewable Fuels Association. Iowa Corn is always working towards expanding and protecting the biofuels industry, as it is a major source of corn grind within the state. Denny Friest, the president of the Iowa Corn Growers Association, said in a written statement. Monty Shaw, executive director of the Iowa Renewable Fuels Association, added, There is no doubt in our mind that over the next decade, low-carbon biofuels will outperform electric vehicles if judged by sound science. Unfortunately, we repeatedly see policymakers put their fingers on the scales. Representative Feenstra's biofuels bill will help ensure the competition is on a level, scientifically-based playing field. And that's our final front-page story. Here in the Ford Dodge Messenger, Monday, February 20th edition, we move on now to page 2A, and it shows a photo from the files, February 2008. That's a long time ago. It shows Jane Burleson, a former Ford Dodge City Councilwoman, holding up an election poster she brought back from Nigeria, where she spent time teaching women about government and politics. For this date in history, writes the Associated Press, now this is for Monday, February 21st, 
the 51st day of 2023, there would be 314 days left in the year. 313 now is the, the airing of this paper here on IRIS. The highlight for February 20th, 1962, astronaut John Glenn became the first American to orbit the Earth as he flew aboard Project Mercury's Friendship 7 spacecraft, which circled the globe three times in a flight lasting four hours, 55 minutes, and 23 seconds before splashing down safely in the Atlantic Ocean, 800 miles southeast of Bermuda. On this date in 1792, it'd be February 20th again, it's always a pain to have to bring this to you a day late, but anyway, here we are. In 1792, President George Washington signed an act creating the United States Post Office Department. In 1862, William Wallace Lincoln, the 11-year-old son of President Abraham Lincoln and First Lady Mary Todd Lincoln, died at the White House, apparently of typhoid fever. In 1905, the U.S. Supreme Court in Jacobson v. Massachusetts upheld 7-2 compulsory vaccination laws intended to protect the public's health. Ugh. In 1933, Congress proposed the 21st Amendment to the U.S. Constitution to repeal pr prohibition. In 1965, America's Ranger 8 spacecraft crashed on the moon as planned after sending back thousands of pictures of the lunar surface. In 1987, a bomb left by Unabomber Ted Kaczynski exploded behind a computer store in Salt Lake City, seriously injuring store owner Gary Wright. In 1998, Tara Lipinski of the U.S. won the ladies' figure skating gold medal at the Nagano Olympics. Michelle Kwan won the silver. In 2020, a poll by the Associated Press and the NORC Center for Public Affairs Research found more Americans expressing some concern about catching the flu than about catching the coronavirus. That was in 2020, just three years ago. Five years ago, students who survived a Parkland, Florida school shooting traveled to Tallahassee to urge state lawmakers to prevent another massacre, but procedural moves in the legislature effectively halted any effort to ban assault-style rifles like the one used in the attack. One year ago, Russia extended military drill, drills near Ukraine's northern borders after two days of sustained shelling along the contact line between Ukrainian soldiers and Russia-backed separatists in eastern Ukraine. A short photo essay here shows under control. Several, several area departments take part in controlled burn in Dayton. And one of the photos here at the top shows Coyce Carlson keeping his right hand on his brother, Kaysen Carlson, on the left as they spray water during a controlled burn in Dayton Sunday morning. The brothers are both firefighters with the Stratford Fire Department. Crews from Dayton, Boxholm, Vincent, Lehigh, and Stratford work together to burn the house at 306 North Main Street, the home is owned by John Scogland, who said he plans to use the space for an expanded yard. All right. A couple more photos here show that thing burning down. I've heard of uh, people doing that before. It uh, sounds like a lot of fun if you're going to actually uh, be able to burn a house down just to burn it down. You know, nobody's inside. It's just empty, and it's practice, and yeah. It also shows uh, Kim Anderson here of Dayton enjoying her morning coffee Sunday and watching the crews from several fire departments conduct that controlled burn across the street from her. She looks on with a curiosity. In other news here on page 2A, Belzer, stand-up comic and TV detective, dies. Dateline New York, this is an AP story. 
Richard Belzer, the longtime stand-up comedian who became one of TV's most indelible detectives as John Munch in Homicide, Life on the Street, and Law and Order SVU has died. He was 78. Belzer died Sunday at his home in Bazouls in southern France. His longtime friend Bill Sheft told The Hollywood Reporter. Comedian Lorraine Newman first announced his death on Twitter. The actor Henry Winkler, Belzer's cousin, wrote, Rest in peace, Richard. For more than two decades and across ten series, including even appearances on 30 Rock and Arrested Development, Belzer played the wisecracking homicide de detective prone to conspiracy theories. Belzer first played Munch on a 1993 episode of Homicide and last played him in 2016 on Law & Order SVU. Belzer never auditioned for the role. After hearing him on The Howard Stern Show, executive producer Barry Levinson brought Belzer in to read for the part. Easy enough. Who knew Howard uh, sparked his career? I did not know that, but uh, I do now. Moving on now to page 3A here in the Fort Dodge Messenger. North Korea fires short-range missiles. This is a story, Seoul, South Korea, Dateline, and it is an AP story. In its second weapons test in three days, North Korea fired two short-range ballistic missiles towards its eastern waters Monday, rekindling regional animosities over U.S.-South Korean military drills that it views as an invasion rehearsal. The weapons firings follow an intercontinental ballistic missile launch Saturday and North Korea's threats to take an unprecedented strong response to the drills. A new testing spree also allows North Korea to expand its arsenals amid stalled talks with its rivals and eventually use the boosted military capability as leverage to try to wrest bigger concessions from the United States. South Korea detected the two missile launches from a western coastal town just north of Pyongyang, the North Korean capital, on Monday morning. South Korea's Joint Chiefs of Staff said in a statement, it said South Korea has boosted its surveillance posture and maintains a readiness and close coordination with the United States. Japan's defense ministry said both missiles landed in the waters between the Korean Peninsula and Japan. It said Japan condemned the launches as a threat to the peace and safety of Japan and the international society. In other news, Fort Dodge District names February students and employee of the month. The Fort Dodge Community School District has named its Students and Employee of the Month for February. This program recognizes one elementary, one middle school, and one high school student and one staff member monthly for exceeding expectations. Ellie Adams is the Elementary Student of the Month. Meg Hora nominated Adams. She shared that Adams is a very hard worker, listens to directions, and gets started on her work right away. She puts her best effort into all her schoolwork, is responsible for her work, and helps others as needed. Adams is a kind friend to everyone. She gets along with her peers and includes everyone, making sure they have someone to play or work with. She can be trusted to do what is right, even if a teacher is not watching. Adams' displays are school's four core values, respect, integrity, empathy, and leadership. When Ellie is with other teachers, I get compliments on how well she is doing and how she follows the expectations no matter where she is, Horace said. She is a great positive leader. She is the daughter of Neil and Jamie Adams. A. Mick Andes is the middle school student of the month. 
Rachel Pettigrew nominated Andy's. She shared that Andy's consistently gives her best and does a great job in academic. Academics. Andy's is a model student. She is bilingual and an amazing asset as a linguistic bridge to our English-speaking staff and our Chukese-speaking students. She is patient and respectful in all she does and really pushes everyone to try their best and be their best. Amick is a hidden treasure in our school district, excelling in two languages and cultures. She has overcome incredible odds and is truly a leader of her generation, Pettigrew said. She is the daughter of Athri and Mickey Andes. Slade Babb is the Senior High School Student of the Month. Ryan O'Leary nominated Babb. He shared that Babb is very hardworking and is always on task. He is always willing to help his peers, teachers, and staff members whenever and however he can. Babb has come forward to help a para who has trouble walking, pushing her to her next class in a wheelchair. His positive attitude is contagious, and everyone enjoys when he stops to tell a story or share how his day is going. Slade is the person you like to see when you are having a rough day, as he will lighten the mood and make you smile, O'Leary said. He is a friendly face in the halls and a pleasure to work. He is the son of Jamie Kennedy. Barb Crooks is the employee of the month. Amber Rouse, Taylor Streeter, and Julie Mann nominated Crooks. They shared that Crooks is always willing to help with everyone's needs, from answering questions to finding supplies to participating in assemblies. She takes the time to understand and assist with both student and staff needs. They said that while Crooks' job is fast-paced and she may be getting pulled in multiple directions at one time, she responds with kindness and a positive attitude. Barb manages her workload with patience, diplomacy, and a smile or laugh, they said. She is truly a leader in our building, and we all would be lost without her. Well, we're nearing the halfway point here, but we still have some time, so we'll fill it with some more news, if uh, we can find any here. In this reading of the Fort Dodge Messenger, here's a piece on page 7A written by Sarah Miller, Getting to Know Our Teachers. Actually, hold the phone here. It says Sarah Miller. It doesn't say it's written by her. I better correct that. It shows Sarah Miller, a Title I reading teacher at Field Haver Elementary School, practicing a reading strategy with a second grader named Gunnar Hennings. So the question is, where do you teach? She says, Field Haver Elementary. What grade or subject do you teach? Title I reading, she says. Why do you teach? I teach because I love working with children. Every day is an adventure. I want school to be a safe and fun place for all students to learn and feel successful. What is your favorite part of the school day is the next question. My favorite part of the school day is small group reading, which for me takes place all day. During small group reading, I build relationships with students and teach them reading strategies they can use in the classroom and beyond. I get to help them set goals for themselves and celebrate with them as they meet those goals. Next question. What are you working hardest on right now? Here's the answer. Right now, I'm working hardest on learning new strategies to use with my students. I am making adjustments to how I teach based on my new learning and training in order to help all students succeed, she said. Another question. What are you most proud of as a teacher? The answer. 
I am most proud of seeing students grow and apply their learning throughout the year. Their progress inspires me to continue learning and growing as a teacher as well. What makes you happiest as a teacher? It makes me very happy as a teacher when I see students having fun while applying their new skills. School should be a place to enjoy learning. What are your interests and hobbies outside of school? Well, outside of school, I enjoy reading, being outdoors, and spending time with my family and friends. My husband and I also enjoy traveling and visiting national parks. The second to last question, what do you wish your students and families knew about you? I wish my students and families knew how much I cherish getting to know them. Your kids are funny, sweet, and caring, she says. They make me smile every day. The final question, what does together we rise mean to you? Together we rise means if we work together, we can achieve our goals and achieve improvement. We are committed to collaborating in order to help our students succeed. All right, so that uh, is talking about teacher Sarah Miller. And we're about at the halfway point here in this reading of the Fort Dodge Messenger, so we might as well get the uh, formalities out of the way here. You're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. All programs heard here on IRIS are intended for the use of our listening audience. This is your reader filling in. My name is Andrew Halp. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns about this or any other program, please give us a call at the office during daytime hours, 515-243-6833, 515-243-6833, or toll-free from anywhere across the state of Iowa, 1-877-404-4747. Uh, you can get a radio, uh, equipment, or even donate to us. We always uh, enjoy those donations here on IRIS. Moving on now to the obituaries here, because we are at the halfway point of this reading of the Fort Dodge Messenger. Don't forget, this is the Monday edition. is brought to you here on the morning, early morning of Tuesday, February 21st. We start off with June L. Scharf Saxton. June L. Scharf Saxton, age 96 of Fort Dodge, passed away on 2-18-23 at the Paula J. Baber Hospice Home following a very short illness. Funeral services will be held at 10 a.m. on Wednesday, February 22nd at St. Paul Lutheran Church with the Reverend Jerry Rather and Reverend Kendall Meyer officiating. Burial at the North Lawn Cemetery will precede the service. A visitation will be held on Tuesday from 4 to 6 p.m. at the Lawfersweiler Funeral Home. Following June's service, the family welcomes family and friends to join them for a luncheon and celebration of June's life. June L. Scharf, daughter of Carl and Minnie Quidnow Scharf was born June 23, 1926, at their home east of Fort Dodge. June attended country school and later St. Paul Lutheran School, graduating in 1943 from Fort Dodge High School. Following graduation, June worked for First National Bank. On June 12, 1949, she was united in marriage to John W. Saxton at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Fort Dodge. Following their marriage, June was a loving wife, mother, grandmother, and homemaker. June was an expert seamstress, avid flower and vegetable gardener, and loved living on her family land all her life. As a young girl, June could not wait to join the Cooper Township 4-H Club and wrote about this in her 4-H yearbook. June later became a 4-H leader for many years. June lived in her home until 2021 when health needs led her to 
the loving and caring hands of the staff at Friendship Haven Journeys. June and her husband John enjoyed many years of friendship with church and swimming friends with their book club as well as many bridge and card clubs. June and John traveled in their retirement years to Greece, Norway, and throughout the country visiting family and friends. June was survived by her children, Christine, married to John Schill of Union, Amy, married to Stephen Wiggs of Houston, Texas, Bill, married to Sandy Sartell of... Actually, I'm going to do that again. Bill, married to Sandy of Sartell, Minnesota. Grandchildren, Amanda, married to David Schneider of Dysart, Matt, married to Cassie Schill of Minneapolis, Jack Saxon of Sartell, Minnesota, and great-grandchildren Bowden and Bellamy Schill, nieces Linda Schraff of Mesa, Arizona, Sherry Ellers of Anchorage, Alaska, and Piper of Chandler, Arizona, and nephew Randy, married to Sally Piper of Tucson, Arizona, and great-nieces Erica and Sarah, and great-nephews Christopher and Andrew. June was preceded in death by her husband, John, in 2012. Her parents, Carl and Minnie, parents-in-law, Jack and Grace Saxton, brother and sister-in-law, Don and Ruth Scharf, sister Ruth M. Scharf, brother-in-law and sister-in-law, Don and Rachel Piper, brother-in-law, Glenn Saxton, nephew Roger Piper, and great-niece, Kristen Ellers. June's greatest joys came from her family, by whom she was loved dearly. For over 50 years, June and her family vacationed together at the Walter League Camp on Lake Okoboji, now known as Camp Okoboji. June's most important dedication was to her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. She was very active in the Lutheran Women's Missionary League at St. Paul, where she was a lifelong member. June was an active member of the Church Circle, Bell Choir, Altar Guild, and Mission House for many years. Memorials may be left to St. Paul Lutheran Church in Fort Dodge, Iowa, Camp Okaboji of Milford, Iowa, Friendship Haven Journeys of Fort Dodge, Iowa, who cared for June for the past year, or the Paula J. Baber Hospice Home of Fort Dodge, Iowa, who supported June in her final days. Next up, we have Darlene Nielsen. Darlene Nielsen, age 84, of Fort Dodge, passed away Monday, February 6, 2023, at the Trinity Regional Medical Center. Funeral services will be held Monday, February 27th at 10.30 a.m. at the Holy Trinity Church. Burial will be at Corpus Christi Cemetery. Visitation will be on Sunday, February 26th from 2 to 5 p.m. at Holy Trinity Church. The Lawfersweiler Funeral Home is serving the family. Survivors include her husband of 63 years, Hans of Fort Dodge, Debbie Flattery and her husband, Dave of Fort Dodge, Susan Hackett and her husband, John of Libertyville, Illinois, Son, Steve Nielsen, and his wife, Cynthia, of West Coastville, Pennsylvania. Son, Mike Nielsen, and his wife, Desha, or Desha, of West Des Moines, Iowa. Son, Dan Nielsen, and his wife, Jenny, of Clive, Iowa. Daughter, Jenny Herstad, and her husband, Joe, of Grimes, Iowa. 19 grandchildren, 11 great-grandchildren, and many nieces and nephews. She was preceded in death by her parents, Joe and Rose. Rose's maiden name was Vavrick. For Manic was her um, was a Darlene's maiden name. Sister Dorothy married to Leo Nedved of Garner, Iowa, and brothers Leonard married to Marie and Donald married to Mary Formanek of Hayfield, Iowa. 
Darlene Rose Formanek was born on November 11, 1948 in Forest City, Iowa, the youngest of four children to Joe and Rose Formanek. She grew up in Hayfield, Iowa, where her parents farmed and later owned and operated the Formanek General Store. She graduated from Hayfield High School in 1957, where she participated in musicals, plays, and girls' basketball. She made it to state in the free throw competition at Veterans Memorial Auditorium. After graduation, she worked at the bank in Garner, Iowa. She met the love of her life, Hans Nielsen, while dancing at the surf ballroom in Clear Lake. On June 4, 1959, they were united in marriage at St. Wenceslas Catholic Church in Duncan, Iowa. Darlene was proud of her Bohemian heritage. The church and dance hall in Duncan were favorite family gathering places. The couple established their home in Iowa Falls before settling long-term in Fort Dodge in 1963, where they raised six children and built a life based on family, friends, and faith. Darlene's favorite pastime was attending her children's and grandchildren's sporting events and other activities. She was an ardent St. Edmund Gale supporter and made many great friends while cheering on the Gales. Darlene worked at the bookshelf and Olson Jewelry for several years where she enjoyed helping others find the right gift. Darlene was a member of Holy Trinity Catholic Parish, Catholic Daughters of America, and Chapter IMPEO. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be left to St. Edmund's schools or to Holy Trinity Church. Next, we have David Fisher. Husband, father, friend, Christian are all accurate but inadequate words, inadequate words to describe the simple but impactful life that was David Fisher. He was born at home October 12, 1944 in Rathburn, Iowa, the youngest of three boys to Charles and Margaret. Margaret's maiden name was McNamar. Their last name, Fisher. He graduated from Ottumwa High School in 1963 and was united in marriage in 1965 to Hula, known as D. Daniels. He ran a Texaco gas station at this time where he fell in love with classic cars and antiques. He worked his way through Indian Hills Community College and went to work for IBM. He joked he could fix anything, but he still could not run a computer. They eventually settled in Fort Dodge, Iowa with their three children. He was preceded in death by his parents, brothers, and son Charlie. He leaves behind his wife of 57 years, Dee, and his two daughters, Serena married to Sean Witzke, and Hope married to Curtis Hartig. He was blessed with seven grandchildren and two great-grandchildren. But these are just the facts of life. The real impact was his quiet kindness, deep love, and empathy for everyone. Service to be at the First Baptist Church of Fort Dodge, Iowa on February 25th at 10 a.m., followed by refreshments. A private interment will be held with the family at Rose Hill Cemetery in Manson, Iowa, later that day to lay David to rest next to his son. Next, we have Charles Peter, known as Chuck Becker of St. Joseph. Charles Peter, known as Chuck Becker, age 76, of St. Joseph, Iowa, formerly of Webster City and Stratford, died February 16, 2023, at home with family. A funeral mass will be held at 10.30 a.m. on Thursday, February 23rd, at Divine Mercy Catholic Church, St. Joseph Catholic Church in St. Joseph, with Father Merle Colash officiating. Visitation will be at the church on Wednesday, February 22nd from 4 4 p.m. to 8 p.m. with rosary at 4 p.m. and Divine Mercy Chaplet at 7.30 p.m. Condolences may be left at www.lensfuneralhome.com. From there we go to 
Henry R. Mackey of Lawrence. Henry R. Mackey, age 94, of Lawrence, passed away on Saturday, February 18, 2023, at his home in Lawrence, Iowa. Funeral service is at 11 a.m. Wednesday, February 22, 2023, at Resurrection of Our Lord Catholic Church in Pocahontas, Iowa, with Father Craig Cullison officiating. Military rites will be conducted by the Lawrence VFW at the church in Pocahontas. Burial is in Calvary Cemetery near Lawrence. Visitation is 10 to 11 a.m. Wednesday, February 22nd at the church in Pocahontas. The Powers Funeral Home of Lawrence, Iowa is handling arrangements. From there we go to Judy Russell of Clarion. A mass of Christian burial will be held at 10.30 a.m. Tuesday at St. John's Catholic Church of Clarion. Visitation will be held from 9 to 10.30 a.m. prior to services at the church on Tuesday. You can learn more at www.ewingfh.com. That's ewingfh.com. Finally, we go to Kenneth H. Comus, last name spelled K-O-M-M-E-S. Kenneth H. Comus, age 87, of Fort Dodge, passed away on Saturday, February 18th, 2023, at Friendship Haven. Services are pending. The Loffersweiler Funeral Home is serving the family. A few funeral announcements here from the Loffersweiler and Seavers Funeral Home, located at 307 South 12th Street in Fort Dodge. First for Ruthie G. Cox, age 78. Graveside services happened on Monday at the Indian Mound Cemetery. Michael Cavanaugh, age 87. Graveside services happened at the Corpus Christi Cemetery Monday at 10.30. June L. Saxton, age 96. Her funeral is on Wednesday, that'll be tomorrow at 10 a.m. at St. Paul Lutheran Church. Darlene R. Nielsen, age 84. Funeral is Monday, February 27th at 10.30 a.m. at Holy Trinity Church. Visitation Sunday, February 26th, 2 to 5 p.m. at Holy Trinity Church. And then finally, Kenneth H. Comus, services are pending. And from there we go to the opinion section here in the Fort Dodge Messenger. The first, Heart of Iowa Housing Trust Fund Makes Impact. It combines public and private money to help homeowners. The Heart of Iowa Regional Housing Trust Fund continues to make an impact in local communities. The trust fund is reaching people in more communities who need financial help to fix up and ultimately stay in their homes. It initially served Hamilton and Webster counties. It recently grew to also include Calhoun, Humboldt, Pocahontas, and Wright counties. The Heart of Iowa Regional Housing Trust Fund was organized in late 2018 thanks to $217,108 from the state, plus matching funds from local governments and banks. It started putting that money to work at the beginning of 2019. Since then, the fund has paid for 50 to 60 projects. That project list includes roofs, furnaces, water heaters, windows, and accessibility needs like walk-in showers. All of those projects were vital to the people who live in the homes where the work was done. The projects also demonstrate the mission of the Heart of Iowa Regional Housing Trust Fund, which is keeping people who need a little financial help in their own homes. The trust fund uses money from the government and private sources to provide financial help to people who own a single-family home and meet income guidelines. Priority is given to those who whose income is at or below 30% of area median income. 
those with disabilities, and those who are 62 or older. The assistance isn't exactly a handout, however. The money comes in the form of loans to the homeowners. They are five-year interest-free loans that will be completely forgiven for those who stay for at least five years in the home where the money was invested. It is refreshing to see a housing program that produces real results for people and does so quickly. We believe the Heart of Iowa Regional Housing Trust Fund is worthy of support, they say. All right, moving on now to the sports section. The headline photo shows Dre's Day. Dre Sean Ross of Fort Dodge has his hand raised as the 2023 Class 3A state champion at 195 pounds. Ross became the biggest freshman in the modern history of Iowa's largest class to win a title with an 8-1 victory over fellow ninth grader Denari Mickel of Ames. Headline, FD's Fab Frosh. Ross captivates the state with historic title. It's written by Chris Johnson. Dateline Des Moines, Iowa. Welcome to the record books, Dreshawn Ross. All week inside Wells Fargo Arena, there were whispers of the six-foot-two freshman specimen from Fort Dodge. On Saturday night in the championship round, the talk became a roar as Ross introduced himself to the state of Iowa. Ross simply dominated the 195-pound final with all eyes on the precocious Dodger. After six minutes of complete control, the varsity rookie cemented his name in the record books as the biggest freshman champion ever in Class 3A. After his hand was raised, the typically stoic Ross pumped his fist and let out a roar. I knew if I just wrestled my style and stayed solid, I had it in the bag, Ross said. The emotion I let out wasn't only because of the win. It was because of all the steps it took to get where I am today and all of the hours in the room, the extra workouts, and the support my family always shows. Fort Dodge head coach Bobby Thompson has watched Ross grow on the mat, but for as good of an individual competitor as he is, he's an even better teammate and representative of his community. Dre Sean is a rarity, Thompson said. He is obviously an excellent athlete who takes all of this seriously, but this is still fun for him. He is out there cutting up with his teammates. This is only the start. He's going to get bigger and better. Another front page sports story here. Juniors Ayala Ross both bring home silver medals. This is also written by Chris Johnson, Dateline Des Moines. After falling short of the ultimate dream, it can be a tough, it can be tough to pick up and get back to the grind. Fort Dodge Juniors Drew Ayala and Demarion Ross fell one step shy in their quest for the first respective state championships on Saturday night at Wells Fargo Arena. It wouldn't stop them from heading back to work in the room, though, in pursuit of a senior year fairy tale ending. Fort Dodge entered the week with 10 qualifiers and 5 Dodgers, all of which will return next season. Reach the podium. Freshman Sean Ross made history as the biggest freshman gold medalist in Class 3A history. Ayala and Demarion Ross were runners-up, while sophomore Coy Davidson at 138 pounds was fourth, and junior Cal Hartman at 170 pounds placed seventh. With 110.5 points, Fort Dodge finished sixth in the team standings. Waverly Shell Rock at 169 was the champion, followed by Southeast Polk 153 and Bettendorf 149. 
Linmar 130 was fourth, and Iowa City High 119.5 was fifth. Our program is about not being satisfied. That's what these guys are all about, getting better, said Fort Dodge Senior High School head coach Bobby Thompson. The standard was set a long time ago with Fred Cooper, who has won the most team titles at Fort Dodge Senior High School and carried on to Don Miller, then Ed Birnbaum. I'm doing my best to make sure our expectations never change and we're doing things the right way. We are doing it in our own, with our own boys. We are young. We'll have nine state qualifiers coming back. I'll take my boys all day long and never look back. Ayala, the top seeded at 113 pounds, face second seeded freshman sensation Jake Knight, 46 to 1 of Bettendorf. This was the third meeting between the two. Ayala won 6 to 4 at the Dan Gable Donnybrook in Coralville to start the year, with Knight prevailing by a 3 to 1 count at state duels. Ayala came out to the aggressor in the match, getting the first takedown for a 2 to nothing lead. The score was tied at 2 to 2 heading into the final period. After trailing 4-3, Ayala nodded the score at 4 before Knight closed the match with a takedown during a late flurry featuring a number of exciting exchanges. It's just a match to learn from and to help me come back better and stronger, Ayala said. Our team came together. We have a lot of guys coming back so we can chase a team trophy in 2023 into the 24 season. Ayala is 79-6 in the last two seasons combined. He's already reached the state finals twice, which has been done by only 14 other Dodgers since 1960. Ayala is 106-12 in his career, already ranking 25th on Fort Dodge Senior High's all-time win list with a full season still to come. Drew was definitely ready, Thompson said. That match hurts because we know that we could have gotten the job done. Drew trains right and lives the lifestyle. He was close last year and seconds away from freshman year. Being a three-time finalist, he's right there. On his way to his third state medal in as many years, Ayala had a fall, a technical fall and TB1 win in the finals. As a competitor, you have to find a way to learn from this. Then bury it and move forward, Thompson said. Good things are going to happen for Drew. His teammates believe in him, and the coaching staff believes in him. Demarion Ross, now a three-time state qualifier, made huge, made huge strides this season. The junior, who was seventh at 138 pounds as a sophomore, jumped three weight classes to 160 and was the top seed in the field. Ross, with a 43-4 record, dropped a hard-fought 4-2 decision to unbeaten Waverly Shell Rock senior Danny Diaz, 24-0. The move in from Miami, Florida, built a 4-0 lead on Ross, who recorded a takedown late in the third period. Diaz pushes the pace, Thompson said. Our strategy was to fight, was to hand fight early and gas him out. He is a physical senior and a tall order to bring down. But I'll take my guys raised in Fort Dodge and a runner-up showing every day. This match will fuel Demarion and get him back to working in the offseason. In his other state matches, Ross had a major decision and two decisions. Ross is now 98-30 in his career and 76-13 the past two seasons. Four of his five state losses are to three-time state champion Ryder Block, Johnston's Jacob Helgeson, Iowa City West Hunter Garvin, and Diaz. 
Davidson, 32-7, the fourth seed who was a state runner-up a year ago, suffered both of his tournament losses to fifth seed Nolan Fellers of bondurant Farrar. In the third-place match, Fellers, the son of 2001 Fort Dodge Senior High graduate and two-time bronze medalist Adam Fellers, earned a 6-4 decision. Fellers won the, the quarterfinal match 10-6 before losing in the semifinals to Block. In the 2022-23 tournament, Davidson went 4-2. Davidson blanked third seed Benjamin Hansen of Ankeny 8-0 to reach the bronze round. Davidson, who is now 66-14 in his career, also picked up two decisions. Coy was right there this week, Thompson said. He wrestled Fellers in a tough match and had a shot at the end. I'm so proud of his effort and heart over the last two days. That's only going to motivate him. After this offseason, where he can get back to 100% health-wise, he will be dangerous next year. Hartman, with a 40-13 record, a junior, was making his first state appearance for the Dodgers following a 25-win sophomore campaign. The seventh-seeded Dodger beat number 12 Jackson Van Clee, 42-10 in Van Clee's record, of Pella, 8-4 in the seventh match. He fell to number two seed Brent Slade, 44-5 in his record of Southeast Polk via major decision in the consolation semifinals. It's nice to get going at Wells Fargo Arena and win some matches, Hartman said. The final result wasn't at all what I had set out to do at the beginning of the year, but it leaves lots of room for improvement for my senior year. Hartman won four matches in the tournament, including three in a row at one point to assure himself of a medal. Cal did a great job of getting on the stand, Thompson said. I already heard him and the other guys talking to all the kids about taking a week off and then getting right back to it. These guys are special, and they are making plans for next year. The Dodgers are projected to return 103.5 of their 110.5 team points in 2023 and 24. Senior Max Bishop, 120 pounds, a four-time qualifier and two-time medalist, won two matches. Freshman Sam Davidson, 106 pounds, won three times. Junior Kane Buttrick, 126 pounds, picked up a win, while freshman Riley Brown, 138, and Jesse Egley, 152, made their inaugural trips to Des Moines. One short story here before we wrap it up for this episode. Closure for Humboldt, duo in 2A. Medal secured for Wildcat seniors Goodell and Gargano. This written by Chris Johnson. Dateline Des Moines. Humboldt's Jace Goodell and Jaden Gargano have been living the wrestling life since they were little. On Saturday, both of their high school careers ended with state medals. We are so proud they were able to finish this way after coming up just short in the past, said HHS head coach Chad Beeman. It is very impressive that, in 2A, they were able to finish in the top eight out of the 96 overall wrestlers in their weight class. Both Goodell, 43-6, and, and Jaden Gargano, 43-9, made three state trips each for the Wildcats. The classmates both lost their consolation semifinal matches. Goodell bounced back with a victory to fifth place to, at 152 pounds. Gargano was sixth at 126 pounds. Goodell, the eighth seed, lost a 9-7 decision at, to number 14 Lucas Crowell, 43-6 in his record, of Garner Hayfield. Goodell secured the fifth-place medal with a 5-4 decision over Benton's Brendan Haying, 39-6. 
Seeing a lot of hard work pay off is always great, Goodell said. I just wish I was a little higher on the podium. The 152-pounder was 4-2 in the tournament with two falls. Goodell t- had a career mark of 128-30. to Humboldt Wrestling has been my life since I was six years old, and the community has always been amazing. I will miss it very much, and it has a very special place in my heart. I'd like to say thank you to Coach Chad Beeman and the rest of the coaching staff for always being there for me. They have been amazing, and I wouldn't want anyone, anybody else in my corner. Beeman Watch Duo put in countless hours of work on their way to their first medals. It's one of those things that is a small token for all the hard work, sacrifice, and commitment to our program that means so much, Beeman said. Jaden and Jace are two of the many that have been a huge part of our success at Humboldt. Gargano, the 10th seed, fell to 9th seed Jaron Gill, 39-6, of Dubuque Wallard in the consolation semifinals, and to number 3, Amare Chavez, 40-7, of South Tama. I'm really glad to finally finish on the podium, Gargano said. Obviously, sixth wasn't the goal, but I gave it everything I had to come up a little sh- and came up a little short. The 126-pounder won five matches in the tournament with one major decision, 5-3. to three. That's all the time we have for this reading of the Ford Dodge Messenger. Thank you so much for listening to Iris, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. This is Andrew Happy Reader saying thanks again for listening. Have a nice day and straight ahead.